The problem is that as we get above elementary teaching, we stop communicating to each other in elementary ways. And that I would argue that adults crave this elementary communication even more than children do, especially in a world with technological overload. Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement, personal growth, and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer, and I chat with world-class performers who have committed to elevating their own life, pushing the limits of their capacity, and helping others to do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Roe James. You definitely need to be yourself in order to stand out. Our guest today, Jamie Mustard, is an expert on why some ideas, products, or messages stand out. He's a multimedia consultant, futurist, creative artist, and iconist. He's worked with leading companies like Cisco, Intel, Adidas, and Whedon and & Kennedy, and is the best-selling author of the same title, The Iconist, and has been featured by NPR and ABC News. Jamie, welcome. It's great to have you on the Elevate podcast. Thank you. Thank you for such a, a, a strong intro. I, I feel like I got a lot to live up to. Hey, you gave me good material to work with. So, <laughs> so I, I know you have a deep and sophisticated understanding of why some aspects of aesthetic design resonate more than others uh, and a passion for art. Did you begin your career as an artist or where did that sort of develop or come from? I mean, it's a great question. I mean, I had problems growing up with literacy and uh, opportunity. So when I had, when I started to kind of resolve my education and figure out what I wanted to do with my life, I was interested in ideas and I was also interested in art. So I applied to kind of different types of art schools, but I also applied to uh, economics and business schools. I got into the London School of Economics and I chose to go there because I thought if I ever end up doing anything in the arts, I want a kind of prism or a methodology or system in which to view the world and that that would be in the long term more valuable to me. There are not a lot of artists that go to the London School of <laughs> Economics. That's yeah. pretty good. I'm not sure there are a lot of people painting and doodling in class next to you. That's true. But, I, you know, I'm more of an art director than a straight up artist. Yeah. But, you know, like I'm not sitting and I'm painting. But, you know, you're a writer. We both write nonfiction. I think writing nonfiction is an art form. Yeah. Yeah. So what did you do after school? Um, after school, I went and got a Wall Street job, which I quickly just realized if I did it for a long time, I would make a lot of money, but I felt just soulless. So I left New York and I went to Los Angeles and I got a job working at a production company that made documentary films. Got it. You should have written a book about, you know, people playing poker on Wall Street and sold a million copies of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that guy's, that guy's my hero. Like he's, he's the gold standard. That guy. Uh, Michael Lewis to me is the best person in the business that kind of writes nonfiction and in different ways that he looks at the world and explores the world. I, yeah. I, I love his writing. I, you know, some of the books have just been amazing. I was listening to him be interviewed by Tim Ferriss recently. I don't know if you heard that. And he reminded me of that, you know, he wrote liars. So he went to work on Wall Street, just make some money. He wrote liars poker as this like massive, like warning book of, <laughs> of the industry. And it became like the marketing brochure. Like everyone read it and they're like, Oh, I want to do that. And he, <laughs> he just couldn't believe that he had written this to show like how absurd it all was. And, and everyone was reaching out saying, thank you for making me to want to go into banking. So it was interesting. 
That's really, I didn't know that part of it. I know, I remember reading something where he was talking about how he wrote that book because he made this absurd amount of money right out of college and thought that he didn't kind of really do anything to really earn it. And that's what made him, that was that discomfort that made him start kind of analyzing it and pulling it apart. And I just thought that was such a, it's so interesting that like so many people could go through that mill and then one guy like him goes, I don't feel good about this. Yeah, and he's such a good storyteller. He he also told a story that he originally was writing articles while he was there. He was getting all these articles published in The Economist and elsewhere. And one of them just sort of like blasted the compensation system in the industry. And his boss came to work and was like, really? And they couldn't fire him because he was like the number one earner, you know, get to incentive. So they, he just agreed, he agreed to write under some like female pen name from now on that no one would recognize. That is hilarious. Yeah. But you know, he, one of the things that he does really well that I think is important is I think that if you want to communicate good ideas in the modern world, you have to understand that it's arts and entertainment now. Yeah. And he writes these very serious books and then nearly all of them get converted into movies. You wouldn't think the big short could be a movie, but it's a movie. Moneyball's a movie, right? And then uh, The Blind Side's a movie. So it's, I do think that that's the other thing that he does that's so amazing is he manages that arts and entertainment component that makes you want to hear it and want to read it and want to know about it. And that's why I think he's incredibly effective. Yeah, and it's just great storyteller. He is. Yeah, he finds a way to make an entertaining story out of anything. So, I mean, we'll talk about how you stand out. You describe yourself as an iconist. Can you explain what that means and how it pertains to the work you do? Yeah, I mean, I listen, I mean, I, I do a lot in art and I do a lot in design, but I make money, you know, mostly working for big companies that want to stand out more. Okay. Yeah. And I, ironically, I'm not a very technological guy, but I end up working for a lot of technology companies. But yeah, the, you know, I basically found a, a pattern, what I call like a primal pattern. And uh, in my book with like some simple storytelling across a bunch of mediums, I explain how it works from medium to medium. But I basically say that there's a reason that we notice one thing and discard another. And that we imagine when something becomes iconic in one's mind in 50 years, like a Kleenex is a Kleenex or a Coke is a Coke, that that's by hope, luck, or happenstance and just time. And so what I, what I argue is that it's not. It's a formula. And you can whether you're a scientist, you're an entrepreneur, you're a, a CMO, you're an artist, you're a designer, I argue that you can apply the simple primal laws in my book and that you can make something iconic in, a, uh, in the mind of an audience right in front of you in five minutes with uh, certainty and deliberation rather than, as I said, hope, luck, cancer years. And that's what my book's about. All right. Well, we'll get into that a little bit without without giving it all away. Okay. And I hope I'm not. I hope I didn't give you too much there. No, no. So, actually, well, let's dive into what one of the things to talk about. What is block theory, and how does it help dictate what gets attention and what does not? Basically, the the first rule of what I like to talk about is that in a world overloaded with content, anything busy gets instantly discarded. And we can get into more of the specifics of that if you want. But it, it's basically this concept I call dilution, which is There's so much messaging in the world uh, now in the last 20 years, like a light switch, that we, our voices become smaller and we become obscured no matter what we are or what we do. And there's a lot of research that I do to, to back that up. So a block is something that one can instantly recognize and understand in their lizard brain before they have a chance to think, like a road sign or a warning label. So the question is, can you apply what works about a road sign or a warning label to every aspect of communication? So it sounds like simplicity is a big part of it. 
Simplicity is a big part of it, yeah. Something that one can comprehend before they have a chance to think. Something being oversized, something being simple, and something being repetitive, right? So, uh, and then I have ways that you can heighten it. But if you take, I mean, I can give you... Yeah, I would love to give us some modern examples. Okay, I'll give you a modern example. I was doing, and, and I can give you an example from the book too. Like, you know, a, basically a slogan is desperate. A slogan is a desperate attempt to create a block. Yeah. But, you know, you know, I was doing the seminar to 100 real estate agents on the, a video class. And, you know, normally when you have a customer or customer base, they'll give you what they care about. So say I go to, a, I'm trying, I'm a real estate agent. I want this person to give me, to help them find a house that they want. Okay. And I said, well, what kind of house are you looking for? And they haven't decided upon yet. And they say, I'm looking for a French country home. That's what I've always wanted. Okay. So I'm arguing that. As you talk to that person, if you just keep repeating the word French country home to them, French country home, we're going to bet you the best French country home, that if, uh, they will engage you and not the other people talking to them. So by being repetitive and simple based on what your audience cares about, um, you will grab and win business. And a, a really good example of that would be in the 1970s. This is the difference between a block and a slogan. You have Coke ads life or McDonald's, we're loving it, or these are desperate. These are slogans. And I'm not trying to put them down, right? Yeah. The fact that slogans exist when they're so cheesy and salesy, why is that? Why did we all agree that we should have these cheesy things that repulse people? <laughs> because people are desperate to try and be simple. So here's a block as opposed to a, a bad slogan. I mean, Camel had one in the 50s, a cigarette a day keeps the doctor away. (laughs) (laughs) Or hostess wholesome, you know, I mean, come on, right? So this is that, those are slogans and they're repulsive. A block would be like in the 1970s, FedEx had this statement and they put it everywhere when it absolutely positively has to be there overnight. Yeah. Now in a time before fax machines and, and the internet, when you, all you had was overnight shipping, uh, if you had a, a real estate document, inheritance, an insurance policy that had a deadline in it, that line was a gut punch. So it's, a, you know, it's kind of like a statement of your purpose or a statement of the result you achieve. And then saying it in an oversized way, in an, in an uncomfortably oversized way and repetitive way makes it a tractor beam. And then I also talk a lot about in my work about transparency and honesty because you know, it's not a tool of manipulation because once people start looking at you, uh, they'll scrutinize you. So if they're, you're lying to them, they'll figure it out pretty quick. So it's not a tool of manipulation. And it's also based on what the customer cares about, which actually builds credibility because it means that you took the time to figure out what they care about most emotionally. So where does like the Geico lizard fall here? I mean, it's a weird, like it's become an icon. Is it, is that just a marketing tactic or tool? Because yeah. It's, that's a really good question because that's, that's an example of like a block works whether it's good or bad, okay? Yeah. So I wouldn't call the Geico lizard particularly good, but because... <laughs> Persistent. <laughs> because yeah. they repeat it over and over and over, yeah. a, a block works whether it's a good block or a bad block. I'm basically arguing, I'm saying that what George Orwell talked about in 1984, everything that he says in 1984, this like repetitive, oversized, bold imagery, those, these are the rules of human perception. All I'm saying is that the way that George Orwell is communicating about it, it was that it was somehow inherently nefarious. And I'm saying it's not. It's the way that human beings prefer to take in all information 
and they, they prefer to connect complex information to a big monolithic repetitive simplicity. I have research in the book that proves that. And uh, it's how we teach children with these big, bold images. And, but the problem is that as we get above elementary teaching, we stop communicating to each other in elementary ways. And that I would argue that adults crave this elementary communication even more than children do, especially in a world with technological overload. And Matt, we're, you, know, you were exposed to 250 advertising messages a day back in maybe 1950. By 1970, it was maybe 2,000. By late 90s, it was maybe five to 7,000. Today, you're being hit by between 10 to 20,000 advertising messages a day. So a big, repetitive, bold simplicity, like a warning label in whatever you do, it's an oasis for people. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help define the right professionals for your team faster and for free. Any candidate who's looking for a job is going to be on LinkedIn. And LinkedIn isn't just another job board. It's a vast network of more than a billion professionals, and many like myself use it every day, which also makes it the best place to hire. LinkedIn gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Small businesses are wearing so many hats and might not have the time or resources to hire. That's why 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring. Post your job for free today at linkedin.com practical. That's linkedin.com practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. So... How do you look at that in the context? Uh, so this is the middle of June. You know, we've had everything going on before that, but in the last couple of weeks, there's a lot of noise, right? So who do you think has done a good job standing out in their response or just being able to, I mean, probably one of the noisiest social media times that I can remember, which is the primary form of consumption for a lot of people. Have you have you seen any specific brands or or voices or tactics really do a better job of this in the last couple of weeks. And, and then I'll complicate the question by saying, <laughs> this will, you may, may need a few minutes, that there's also people being really careful of not becoming iconic for the wrong things because that seems to work just as fast in the reverse for them. So I'd love to get your commentary on any or all of the above. You're, you're pulling me into soci- a sociological... How sociological and away from marketing am I allowed to get is the question, right? I mean, I think it's instructive because it should be the same 
principles, right? Whether it's marketing or not, if you're trying to get attention or get people to follow your cause or your product or otherwise, I would think. Um, okay, so I'm going to have to uh, give you some kind of social examples. Yeah, I'm going to contextualize it though with a marketing concept. Okay, Perfect. and then I'm going to go into what you asked me. Okay, cool. Yes. Okay. Your party. All right. So in the late '90s, there was a woman in uh, that was doing research for Microsoft and Apple named Linda Stone, and she coined the term "continuous partial attention" in 1998 to talk about how people were so distracted by advertising and technology that they were only partially paying attention. So this is the burgeoning days of the internet. So one first you have to understand in the, in the context of my work, there's lots of books that talk about how distracting the internet is. Yeah. What I'm interested in is if everyone around you is distracted, if she wrote that and coined that term before we had some, 10 years before smartphones, and now we're 10 years into smartphones, yeah. more, right? How distracted are we now, 20 years later? So what I'm concerned is if everyone around you is distracted, what does that do to you as an entrepreneur? What does that do to you at a company that knows you have an amazing innovation and you're not getting the traction that you think you deserve or believe? So there's psychological effects of that. There's all sorts of things. So I just want to make sure that it's understood all. I'm going to explain this in the context of, you know, I call that uh, dilution, but I'm really concerned with what all this messaging does in terms of the individual's ability to be heard. Fair? Totally. Okay. So to answer the question, like I think in, who's, in terms of who's done a good job, well, first of all, the way you determine what your block is, say if it's a conceptual block where you're an entrepreneur or you're an enterprise company trying to sell something business to business or you're trying to sell to the consumer, is there's an intersect point between uh, the best that you have to offer and what your audience most cares about, kind of like the FedEx example. And if you blow that up in an oversized way and repeat it, you'll see what happens for you. It's magic. It's not magic. It's science, but it's almost like a Jedi mind trick in terms of how much it will attract people to you who are looking for you. Okay. Because yeah. you have to understand when someone's looking for you, they're, they're given all this busy stuff. So when they find something that corresponds to their emotional concern, oversized Sesame Street style before they have a chance <laughs> to think, they're going to engage with you just out of relief. Does that make sense? Absolutely. All right. So some of, from a social standpoint, I think that you know, like if we talk about this concept of like, what is the emotional concern of the person that you're trying to reach? So another example of that would be in terms of the emotional concern, and this isn't always obvious, right, is we had this thing happen three months ago, and for the first three weeks, people were just fried. They didn't know, like their businesses, they didn't know anything about PPE. Um, <laughs> they couldn't, am I going to be able to pay my rent? Uh, there was no kind of uh, stimulus package or social, you know, net that was going to help everyone. And there was just a lot of really, really paranoid, anxious. I would even go as far as dangerous energy. I would go to the grocery store and people were just, or talk to my entrepreneur friends. They were just freaked out. You know what I'm talking Did you feel that? Yeah. Unfortunately, we've gone a little too far the other way now. Um, but yes, it was just fear and unknown and. Okay. So one thing that wasn't coming from the White House, and again, this isn't a critique of anybody. This is just kind of my view of it. One thing that wasn't coming from the White House was moral leadership in terms of how should you feel about this? How do you process this? What does it mean to stay at home? What are the, what's the information? What, what, people just were suffering from no information. How yeah. many people are dying? How is it going to grow? How is it not going to grow? I live in the state of Oregon, and our governor was just telling us everything's closed. and then drop the mic. Well, Andrew Cuomo, who's a state governor of New York, he came out and started doing press conferences 
filling in the gap of here's the information, take it or leave it, like it or don't like it. We weren't getting that from the federal government. So all of a sudden this state governor, because what people wanted was information so that they could process their environment. That was the emotional concern at that time. So because a state governor, normally we don't see state governors giving national press conferences, but because what he was offering was corresponding with the emotional need of like filling in the gap of what's actually going on, his morning press conferences became nationally magnetic. Internationally, yeah. Internationally magnetic, there you go, because it corresponded to the emotional concerns of the country more than what anybody else was saying. I hope that's not too esoteric of an example. No, so, and it seems like the consistencies are you need a simple, visual, big representation of something that meets people's needs and concerns. Exactly, and repetitively. Yeah, I've seen part of this in customer service. So I've seen Delta and some of the airlines are pretty good, right? I, I fire off this message saying, you know, I just landed for the third time at midnight at the airport and no one meets the plane and whatever. And this is really frustrating that you have no resources at the airport late at night. And, and this is probably a little uh, NLP, but the, the default response is, is often now I notice. Mr. Glazer, I, I understand that you're very frustrated that you're <laughs> three flights in a row that get in late. It seems like no, and they're like, oh, they understand my problem. Just repeating back the problem and, and acknowledging it goes a long way to sort of either diffuse the anger or, or build empathy. I think you're so right. And I think that you really see that when you're looking at customer service on the phone. Yeah. Like, uh, when I call T-Mobile, and I'm probably sometimes talking to somebody in the Philippines, sometimes I'm not. But if I've had a frustration, the person in a very rote way, they're reading off of the pattern. This is just to your point, Robert. You know, They're yeah. reading off a pattern. They'll just start repeating to me, I really am sorry about your frustration. I understand that you're frustrated. And they're reading it. I know they're reading it. It still feels good, though. <laughs> yeah, it sounds rote. But just the fact that they keep repeating it calms me down. And that's what I'm talking about. When, when, what you have, when you can distill what you have to say down to one thing and you lead with that in a way that corresponds with the emotional concern of, of that particular person that you're trying to communicate to, um, you connect. And you know, businesses exist to solve problems, right? So put that, the biggest emotional problem that you solve better than your competitors up front, put it way oversized and say it over and over. So yeah, so obviously customer service companies are figuring this out, that by repeating the emotional concern, you get a connection and a relief. So Jamie, there is art and science to what you do. If you look at a campaign, are, are you, and, and it takes repetition, right, to know whether it sets in, are, are you pretty convinced 90% of the time you know what will work? Or is there, is there a fair amount of subjectivity to where you have to figure out where, where it lands and given the need for repetition, you got to do that over and over again until you find out that people hate it or they resonate with it. Well, I mean, listen, I go through, when a company hires me to do this through them for them, I go through a tremendous amount of rigor, okay? Yeah. So it's a very rigorous process. I mean, years ago, I was working for a technology company and they had one product that they were really dependent upon because it was going to help them deal with kind of their competitors depressing their prices. The problem is no one was buying the product and the engineering teams and the marketing teams were all disagreeing on how to sell the product. So they brought me in and there was maybe six teams from marketing and six, seven teams from engineering and everyone got to say their piece. I, I sat there for a day and let each team talk. Okay. And then 
on the on the, the beginning of day two, everyone agreed that there was one aspect of this thing that the audience actually cared about. So that with the people that were engaging, they only cared about one part of it. So they were all, because they were able to have their stay and we had the statistics of what actually people cared about, we were at the end of that, that those few days able to determine, okay, the block is gonna be built around this. Did everyone agree? Yeah, everyone agreed because they all got to say it was just, and everybody was in front of each other. In fact, between sessions, between like lunch or at a break, people were kind of coming up to me going, God, I wish you'd have done this years ago. So what was the disconnect? What about the block brought them together? Was it just they weren't communicating? I'll give you an example. I mean, I, I talk about it in the book. I'm nervous because I, I'm only not being specific. And I, one of the few complaints I get uh, sometimes is that I don't talk enough about my work that I do for clients. And the reason yeah. is they don't want me talking about it. Yeah, that, that's fair. But uh, – <laughs> If you're an engineer and you make something and you spend two years with teams making it and it does 25 things, it is going to be your natural impulse to go look at the 25 things that we've done and you're going to push those things onto marketing and go tell them the 25 things. That's human nature. So for them to turn around and go, hey, this is too much. No one can see anything because you're giving them 25. And there's lots of research and examples in the book that prove this and show this. Yeah. So... You know, it's a process to get people to understand, no, you can only lead with one to three things, and here's why. That you can say that to somebody, but like you have to understand the person that made the thing, it's antithetical to them to then turn around. It's human nature to want to promote all the 25 things. Hey, Elevate listeners, whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info the ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. So part of this, and this is true for any business or whatever, is you need your beachhead, right? It, there's, there's a lot of things it could do, but what is the first order of magnitude that would attract the most amount of people, right? Uh, yeah. And then a product can have its own beachhead. A company can have its own beachhead. I mean, right. like when I go into a small business, when I was beta testing this 15 years ago, when I first had the idea, and I wasn't even calling it the same thing, um, Robert, I would go into a company, maybe it was, it's a $20 million uh, paving company or something. That yeah. actually happened. Okay. So typically in a company like that, there's an 80-20 rule. There's 20% of the salespeople are doing 80% of the sales. Yeah. So the first thing I would do is I'd interview those 20% separately and, and ask them what they were saying to customers. Most of the time they were hoarding it because they were making all the commissions. And I would quickly see a pattern and then the beachhead would become obvious. 
right? In a case like that, the other 80% of the salespeople, they're all talking about beautifying the home and making the home look bigger. Yeah. Uh, the 20% of the guys were only talking about equity in the house and increasing your equity uh, and making your home look beautiful for free because you're going to get a heck of a lot more for your house when you sell it if you have paving stuff. And they were only pushing the equity pick, but you get this beautiful thing for free. And that made them sell far, far more focusing on the equity than the other 80% of the guys that were focusing on beauty. That would be a crude example. These are crude, right? Yeah, I yeah, know that makes sense. I, when people come to you, what problem, what are they out there looking for and the problem they want to solve? Because it, 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 I'm curious how you sort of explain the expertise or the, or the process. Are they, is it a marketing challenge? Is it a product? It might, like, it might show up with a lot of different symptoms. Okay. I mean, it's a really great question. And, and, you know, it's funny, it's different in different size companies Yeah. in a small company, like a startup or for like a small company that may be doing anywhere between a million and 50 million a year. Um, a it's, they need to make money and it's a lot more to them than a company, meaning it's their identity. Yeah. If it's a $5 million business, it's their kid's college, it's their mortgage, it's how they see themselves in the world because when we walk up to people at a dinner party, we don't say, who are you, what are you about? We say, what do you do? Yeah. So it ends up doing something for them far more than just making them money, okay? Uh, but where it's most interesting to me is when it's like a billion dollar company or a multi-billion dollar company with tens of thousands of employees and they're successful and they're profitable. Okay, that's where it's interesting because I'll be talking to a CEO or a CMO and they're massively successful. So what we are normally end up talking about is this thing that I call drag. Yeah. And drag is this thing where you're killing it, but you know you're communicating horribly. You know, like if you could actually be connecting with customers, you'd be doing twice as much. That bugs the heck out of highly successful people. Yeah. It bothers them. It's like an itch. So they know they, they know they have something great. They know it's just not landing as it could. Yeah, and it creates an itch. Sometimes they haven't even. I'll walk into a meeting, and they haven't. They don't even know what's bothering them. They just agree to talk to me, and I just yeah. start talking about drag. This thing that I call drag. I talk it, and uh, I actually don't talk about it in the book, but I talk about it on my website a little bit. And I start talking about this thing called drag, and it's like their ears prick up, you know, and they just get really focused and they start listening. So that for them. It's a huge problem for successful people that do not communicate well. Even if they haven't recognized it yet as a problem, they feel the anxiety and the itch of it. And the minute I tell them that I can scratch that itch, they how, well, how would you do it? You know, it's always an emotional hot point. Interesting. Well, they, yeah, they know they have the problem. So that's, they're more interested in the solution. Yeah, but the reason I talk about it, Robert, is that it's counterintuitive. When I, when I started doing this and beta testing it, I had to work my way up before I was being hired by companies like that. And I thought, well, what's it going to be like working for these big companies? They've got it all dialed. They're not going to necessarily think they want what I have to offer. So that was a big surprise for me. I, I feel like those guys are almost easier, quicker, faster to understand. And, and it's, it bothers them even more. <laughs> yeah. Well, so when you're, when you're working with businesses and customers, what, what's their biggest misconception about what makes something stand out? Like, what have they been doing really wrong? And then how do you sort of address the misconception? God, what's the biggest misconception? I think the biggest misconception is leading with too much, like yeah. trying to share everything at the same time. But I also think that misconception comes from a type of avoidance 
we, you know, people think they want to stand out, but it's like the public speaking that we do, Robert. We go on this career where we want to be public speakers and we actually start to get talks, but then we actually have to walk on stage in front of hundreds of people. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been doing this for a few years now and there's never a time where that's completely comfortable for me. Like I say, I want to do it and I work towards it. Yeah. But when we feel the white heat of all of the eyes upon us, that makes almost anyone, no matter how much someone says they want it, there's a certain amount of discomfort that comes from that. So that's a, a huge part of the issue. So they'll do a bad slogan and they'll lead with the busy and they'll convince themselves that they're trying to stand out. But it really, it's their way of not really standing out because they don't really want everyone looking at them. Because when everyone looks at you, if you're doing things wrong, if you suck, if you don't do what you say, whatever, you know, if you, when people are looking at you, they'll see you. And, and so you better be, you better do what you say and you better, you better deliver. Any other key principles uh, from the book or lessons that, that are helpful for people to understand? I mean, I think that the biggest thing is this concept that the first third of the book is about, and I don't want to be overly salesy about a book because a book is irrelevant the way I see the world. I don't care about a book. Robert. Like yeah. a book, you know, to me, it's all about the ideas and, you know, the problems that you're trying to solve. Okay. And a book is just a donkey so that you can give that <laughs> to more people. It's not really, it's not the problem you're solving. Right. Yeah. So, so I'm mostly concerned with the problem I'm solving. And so the only thing I would say is the first third of the book deals with this concept that I call dilution, you know, which we touched upon, which is, you know, before, if I was a baker walking around in like, you know, 1950s Topeka, I might be competing with every, with the other five bakers in town. Today, yeah. I'm competing with 50,000 bakers on the internet that can overnight something. So I'm smaller, no matter what I do in the world, whether I'm an artist, a scientist, innovator, an entrepreneur, I'm smaller. So a way to stand out and be seen, it's an urgent problem. Scarcity of attention is the defining business challenge of our time. Absolutely. So understand that you live in a world where there's scarcity of attention and attention is the most important commodity there is in business because of this overload. Make it the most important thing if growth and scalability is what you care about. You know, understanding that attention is the most elusive commodity in the time we live in, you know, accepting that and facing that is the first step to growing. Wise words. So, Jamie, last question. What's a personal or professional mistake you've made that you've learned the most from? And, and I'll, I'll caveat, this can be singular or it can be repeated. Um, a little over 15 years ago, I had a catastrophic failure in business and had to close a business. And it was the worst and most defining moment of my life. And it was because I didn't understand concepts of IP and I didn't understand concepts of margins. And what it did for me was it made me think, okay, what are you good at? <laughs> you know, and what are you good at that someday you could connect an intellectual property to? So, it, you know, I, I failed a business. I closed a business. I released employees. I lost a ton of money. It was the worst, most disgusting thing that's ever happened to me in my life. And, but it was the most clarifying moment of my life of how I would move forward and why I'm here today at the same time. It's a very common story. And I'm sure you ran into those same issues later and you were totally prepared to handle, handle them in a different way. Yeah, yeah, I was. But also the way I construct things is I look at what's the intellectual property connected to what I have. Because like if, it, you know, I, I had a brother that was working in the software business and I was watching him get really, really successful. So I, I said, what's the difference in, you know, between him and I, I could say rich, 
you know, I'll say rich, not just successful, rich. And, uh, the, and the, the way I answered that question was that software was an intellectual property and he could just augment it every year and the margin solved huge problems, but also the margins were insane. So um, I thought, how can I apply that to the things in life that I'm good at, you know, to my talent and my strengths? And I, had I not had that failure, I would have never done that. But again, it was, you know, that's hard. Even when you ask me the question, Robert, it's, yeah. it, it makes me look at it and I'm just like, I hope I'm not being too raw by sharing that story, but it was a raw experience. No, you went, you went right to it. So that was clearly what you thought of. Well, Jamie, where can people learn more about you, your work and your book? Well, um, the book came out in October. You can find me at theiconist.org. So T-H-E-I-C-O-N-I-S-T dot O-R-G, theiconist.org. My book is in Barnes and Nobles across America. So you can walk into your local bookstore and grab it. And I'm on Amazon and there's an audio book and Kindle, you know, I'm on, you know, I'm in, I'm everywhere. So if you just Googled the iconist book or Jamie mustard, the iconist, uh, you'll see tons of resources to find me. And also, you know, I love to help people. It's my goal beyond business. You know, I really do see myself as a servant. So I get emails from all over the world, people asking me questions about their blocks and this, and I try to respond to every single one. So if you have an issue and you're interested, but you want some help, send me an email, go on my website. There's a contact page, send me an email. You'll get a response from me. All right. You heard the offer. Take advantage of it. Jamie, thanks for sharing your story with us. You have a rare expertise in what's a pretty fascinating field. Thank you for what's been a really incredible and interesting interview, Robert. I really appreciate you having me on. All right. To our listeners, thanks for tuning into the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Jamie and his work on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. Thank you again for your support. And until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.